The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Morning, everyone, and uh, I am Gil. Though yeah. so some of you were expecting Wes Nisker to be here today, and um, uh, Wes uh, is sick, and uh, we got a call last night that uh, he was not feeling well, and this morning confirming that he was not well enough to come down here. So I'm happy to be here, and uh, the, um, however, the. I'm in the process of teaching a retreat at our retreat center in Santa Cruz, and it's closing today. So um, I kind of need to be down there to close it. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to talk for a half an hour, and uh, maybe a shorter talk, and then I'm going to um, just head straight out the door and, <laughs> and, and uh, not say hello to anyone or pretend I don't know anyone. And, um, and if you could pretend you don't know me, that would be... Because <laughs> I need to get down there um, by 11.30. So, um, today is the first week of um, the Buddhist Earth Care Week. And uh, with the idea being that <clears throat> one day a year, one week a year, we uh, kind of highlight... Um, the importance of caring for our earth and all of its inhabitants <clears throat> and that it's an important value in Buddhism. And um, some of the earth care committee here at I- IMC had put out a table information over there and they've organized a few things. There was a movie last night, wasn't it? That um, tomorrow, a wonderful documentary. They showed parts of it. And um, so uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about this topic, earth care. And I am fond of this word care because uh, in my mind it has two meanings in English. Uh, one is when you, we care about something, meaning we think it's important. And uh, we care for something uh, or, or caring for something it means that we're tending to it, we're nourishing, we're supporting it, we're helping it, we're, you know, we're... And these two together to see, see the earth as important and to tend to it, to care for it. And, um, and the question is, where does caring come from and where do we get the sense of importance for this world? And how does it fit into the idea of Buddhism, Buddhist practice? In a couple of weeks, uh, we're going to have a kind of a unique event here on Saturday the 14th, kind of an uh, introduction, I don't know what to call it, to the uh, new field, perhaps, called of Buddhist environmental chaplaincy. I've been involved in Buddhism for a long time and uh, been involved in teaching chaplains, Buddhist chaplains, for a long time. And um, I've had a long-standing love with uh, the environment in fact, in, when I was in college, for a while I was an environmental studies major. That was the direction I was going. And then uh, kind of Buddhism intervened. And uh, so uh, bring these uh, three concepts together, Buddhism, environment, and chaplaincy, as part of this uh, exploration in two weeks. And uh, the idea of... Um, 
um, you know, chaplaincy has a lot to do, and Buddhism has a lot to do with what we care for, caring for things. So, um, so what is it that Buddhism brings? to the table, what does chaplaincy bring to the table of caring for our environment? I think Buddhism for me is a very important ingredient, at least for me in my relationship to the world around me, the natural world, the human world, the combination of all those. And, um, and it isn't a connection which is uh, mandatory in my mind in terms of what I have to do. That's not how I think. It's also not a... Um, a uh, first and foremost a to-do list, but rather it's something that uh, wells up or arises as a natural expression or outgrowth of my heart. And, um, and it kind of, Buddhist practice works this way, it works many ways, but uh, Buddhist practice uh, uh, over time will transform people who practice it from being self-centered to being something that I call situation-centered. Self-centered in English kind of means we're conceited. I mean, we're caught up in ourselves. We, everything refers back to ourselves. We're the center of our little universe. And uh, me, myself, and mine is the operating principle of many of our thoughts, many of our concerns, many of the orientations we have. And, um, and it turns out that the me, myself, and mine operating principle operates in more people than who think they have it. <laughs> in fact, probably a lot more because m- many people don't realize how embedded and how much they're operating. It's kind of like the fish that supposedly don't see the water they swim in. Uh, may- many of us don't see the water of self and self-identity and conceit that we're swimming in. It just seems completely natural part of the world. And so it's natural to take care of ourselves, natural to think that way. And also the word conceit uh, implies in English the idea of um, you know, thinking you're better than everyone else. In Buddhism, the idea of conceit and this kind of self-centeredness can also imply that we think we're worse than everyone else, we're inferior to everyone else. And uh, that is another form of conceit. But someone who has that thinks it's true. It's not really, they're not conceited, they're not self-centered, it's just true that they're lousy. And that's the nature of the universe. And so, you know, of course, you know, there's no questioning of it. Um, and there's many forms in which uh, self-identity plays itself out. And it bec- uh, one of the forms, one of the expressions of it is in greed. Another is in hate. Another is in envy and jealousy and resentment. Uh, it's uh, lust, confusion, fear. And I think a fair amount of anxiety, if not all anxiety, probably has some footing, some connection to some kind of conceit, some kind of idea of self that's operating there. And Buddhism puts a tremendous emphasis on studying, understanding the role of self-identity as a conceit, as something we get attached to and hold on to. And so the the idea of being self-centered is, um, uh, I think, is, you know, is an understandable concept. As people practice something like meditation, the, the, sh- the shortcomings of being self-centered, the shortcomings of operating under a variety of attachments and clingings, 
becomes pretty obvious. We can feel it physically. <clears throat> it takes a toll <clears throat> on us energetically. It takes a toll on our muscles and take <clears throat> takes it <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> it takes a toll on um, our psyche and and uh, the tightness, the contraction, the constriction, the stress, the constipation that comes, the mental constipation that comes with self-preoccupation is pretty powerful. And to start feeling, sitting quietly, like in meditation, and sooner or later as we quiet down, down enough, to start feeling some of those effects, to feel the suffering, feel the, the discomfort of being caught up in self-centered phenomena. So, um, and so then it becomes relatively natural to want to do something about that. And, uh, to f- and as we start looking more and more deeply, uh, there's less blaming other people for how we are. So when we sit and meditate and our state of mind, our state of being, the state of our muscles, the state of our exhaustion, it doesn't really make sense in meditation to spend a lot of time blaming others for it or the world for it because um, they're not going to help while you're meditating. It's not going to do you much good. In fact, to be involved in those kinds of thoughts and hopes, you'll see as you're mindful, it's just another form of stress. So at some point, the, the natural thing is to focus internally and what, is, what am I doing here to cause this? What am I contributing to this? And, uh, and you can start seeing that there are uh, clingings, attachments, beliefs that we have, ways of thinking we have, which don't serve us. And one of those is we start seeing that the self-centeredness doesn't serve us. I came up against this at, uh, in the first years of my practice and I could see that my self-centered ideas about myself, how I was defending myself, trying to present myself to other people, um, convince them this is who I was. There's a lot of social gymnastics to get people to see you as you want to be seen. And I could see that there are shortcomings of that and I thought this is, that doesn't make sense it's time to put this down. And I couldn't because I was afraid to. I, you know, it, it served a purpose. It protected me. I thought it was going to save me or protect me or keep me from danger or something. And, um, and I just felt like kind of stepping over an abyss to put down this part of myself. But with time, we learn to put it down. And if we put it down with mindfulness, meaning that our uh, capacity for attention gets stronger we're more aware, uh, then the, the decreasing of, of conceit comes with an increased capacity for awareness. Now, where does awareness reside? Uh, in a sense, uh, you know, it's your awareness. You know, it's not like you're borrowing someone else's awareness. Uh, but it's your awareness. So the awareness is kind of centered here on you. But you're no longer centering around a concept of self and a, a strong, hard, sharp idea of me, myself, and mine. In fact, the boundaries between self and other begin to dissolve in some degrees with the hard, fixed ideas. And it's possible to be very aware, luminously aware, without it kind of, with feeling empty, beautifully empty inside, transparent inside. There's no resistance, no contraction, no pressure inside that's associated with selfing. And it feels like it's just like a beautiful, uh, uh, sacred, transparent, or open space out of which or within which 
there operates thoughts, emotions, feelings, sensations, all this is operating, but it's not coalesced in a tight way, in a defensive way around the self. And so the awareness is kind of here, for sure, and it's sent, it's, and we become situation-centered rather than self-centered. Meaning that flowing from us becomes a, a capacity to pay attention to the world around us um, more and more clearly. And because it uh, arises out of us, we don't ignore ourselves. We are aware of our thoughts. We are aware of our emotions. We are aware of our sensations, what's going on for us. We're tracking these things. But we're not uh, glued onto them. This is who I am. There's more of a feeling of impersonality or, or a freedom from self as these things operate. And we're tracking them enough that we're responsible for them. We can decide what to, um, what to do, what to not do, what to uh, speak, what not to speak, because we're kind of tracking what's going on here. The, um, the, um, so the, um, our, uh, I was a little distracted, sorry. So uh, what happens when we become situation-centered? One of them is the sense of who we are, connected to the wider world, uh, is not so fixed. And so an example I like to give, it was a very important moment in my life. I was a college student studying uh, botany, botany class. And we were learning uh, with great diagrams on the wall, on the, on the blackboard, uh, the oxygen, uh, carbon dioxide cycles and how it worked through the leaves of the plants and, and the plants converted carbon dioxide into oxygen and you know, they showed how they did it, the pathways for it, it was great. And I was sitting near the front of the classroom, I was kind of absorbed in taking all this in, I was kind of you know, pretty impressed by it. And I, uh, class came to an end and um, maybe because I was a little bit concentrated, maybe this partly the impact of what happened next, I left the classroom and we go out to this courtyard at uh, college in Davis where I went to. And there's these big valley oaks in the courtyard. Beautiful big oaks. And I came out there and I, I stopped and was kind of stunned looking at these oak trees. And I, I, I just learned about this oxygen carbon dioxide cycle. And I said, well, I'm breathing out carbon dioxide and these trees are breathing out oxygen, converting it, you know, going around. I need those trees. In fact, I need those trees more than I need two kidneys. I need those trees more than I need lots of my appendages. I can do without some of these appendages. You know, I could live and, you know, without a hand or different things. And, but I can't live without those trees. I would go, you know, without the trees, without the plants, I would probably last, you know, a minute. Uh, without a, you know, one kidney, I could live my whole life with one kidney or something. I was, I was thinking that way. So these things that are, feel so important to me, who I am, I can kind of do without, but I can't do without those trees. Where do I end? Where's the line between me and the tree, the tree and me, if I need it so intimately? And this, this kind of intimacy and the sense of kind of 
being in this all together in some deep way, was very powerful for me. This feeling of, wow, we're in this together. I, you know, this, I need this. And from that, uh, that uh, moment, I felt a lot of care for the natural world because the, the natural world seemed like it was me or part of me or we're, we're in it together. We're co-conspirators. You know, the cons- literally, Latin root for conspiracy means to breathe together. Isn't that great? So we're all co-conspirators in this world. We're all breathing together and breathing together with the plants and we're all in it together in some way. And so this situation center, what happens when we take it outwards without the hard fixed idea of myself and we start seeing that it's a cooperative enterprise, this world that we're in. And how do we live in this cooperative world? Um, (coughs) uh, And what I'd like to propose is that as we kind of have less greed, less fear, less hatred, when we touch into, uh, uh, and when those things don't operate so much, those are kind of surface emotions, I like to think of them, surface motivations. And when those fall away, then we have access to what's deeper in our hearts. And so we have access to love and generosity and and sense of experiences of peace, fearlessness, all kinds of things, love. And uh, so what happens when we encounter this cooperative world, this interactive world, and we, we love it, we care for it? Maybe care for it so intimately that it's kind of like the way the left hand cares for the right hand, the right hand cares for the left hand when we wash our hands. Do you ever, does the left hand ever thank the right hand? <laughs> There's a, you know, there's a, there's a right hand everything. Oh, I'm going to ca- take so good care of that left hand, and I'm going to, you know, give myself over. I'm going to sacrifice myself. I'm going to really, you know, I could do better things, but I'm going to really help out this left hand and, and, you know, and clean it. It's dirty, poor little, poor little left hand. <clears throat> Something, right? No, it's just kind of, it's what we do. It's just like there's no kind of an unselfconscious movement. <clears throat> Can there be that kind of unselfconscious movement? in caring for the world around us, the natural world. And we see that in, uh, you know, in kind of a dramatic, maybe symbolic representative way on retreats where I am now, or retreats like at Spirit Rock um, Meditation Center up in Marin County. Um, There are, uh, certain times of the year, lots of slugs, little snails, that go crawling across the the road where meditators are walking. And it's quite remarkable to watch these meditators come out and, you know, with trim, they have like, like they have all the time in the world, stop and kind of like help these little slugs, you know, or these little snails out of, the, out of harm's way so no one steps on them. <clears throat> you know, it's like beautiful, um, you know, to, uh, you know, I, you know I, the whole world will come to a stop, I guess, if we stopped for every slug or something. But... Um, but it's a beautiful sentiment, a beautiful expression that uh, it comes out of, not out of a duty or a requirement, but this kind of, here's something we love, here's something we care for. So the natural world, the uh, world that we live in, uh, what would it be like if you were a giant, like really big, a humongous giant, so big 
that um, in order to support you, one foot would be on Mars and the other foot would be on Venus. And you're like, you know, you know looking down upon this you know, the solar system of ours, you know, and looking down, you see, see, and, and you scoop down and you pick up with your two hands this beautiful blue-green ball that has a little bit of, you know, kind of a little bit moist on the surface. And, um, <clears throat> and you just hold it in your hand. I mean, I think that probably you'd be very careful with it. You know, it'd be a beautiful thing. It'd be something that'd be precious. And maybe you'd hold it with a kind of care that you would hold a, a little, maybe, bird that was wounded and you were trying to take it someplace to get it, uh, to save it and care for it. Just, you know, tenderly or carefully. Or maybe you'd hold it like you'd hold a baby. There was a man who went through our chaplaincy program some years ago. And um, he got into interested in chaplaincy because he had started volunteering at a hospital for a few years. And his volunteer work was he would go into the ICU a couple of times a day for a few hours, a couple of times a week for a few hours. And uh, he would hold uh, preemies, premature babies. Uh, they've now realized that it's really good for the development of premature babies to have physical contact. So, you know, they needed volunteers to provide the physical contact. So he would just, he would just spend two or three hours holding these babies. That, that was his thing. And that was his meditation. And slowly, that changed him. I can imagine that would change all of us to do it. What if, what if the earth was like this, the natural world? For us, maybe what if, what if we had that kind of feeling, that kind of relationship to it? How would we treat it? How would we be with it? What keeps us from seeing the world that way? I don't think it works to, for someone to tell you you should see it that way and get on with it. That doesn't that doesn't develop this natural capacity. I think that it's something we discover for ourselves, but I think for people who meditate. I think to appreciate that this is happening, appreciate there's a softening of the hard edge between me and the world, that there's an opening to feeling uh, care and love. Um, there's kind of a equivalent of Midas touch. You know, King Midas, everything touch became gold. There's the mindfulness touch. And there's a way, as mindfulness gets stronger, that everything mindfulness touches become something precious, become something valuable, something that we care for. Not something that's instrumental for our enlightenment, not something that's instrumental for, you know, you know, being stress-free or, you know, something for me, but rather it's, it becomes, you know, it's a, it becomes a uh, kind of a contact of love or of metta or care. There becomes something, something that we feel intimate with or connected to or the lines between us and them are not so strong. And so um, this world that we live in, the, invi- the natural world, um, how ca- you know, does it make sense to begin caring for it? To leave our houses and look at the trees, the trees, to leave our houses and see the snails, uh, to leave our houses and think about uh, the, uh, where our sewage goes. And is it really going someplace? to get into our cars and wonder about the smog we're making. Where does it go? What happens to it? Out of, out of mind, out of sight? Out of mind, out of responsibility? 
Uh, is this part of what we're contributing to the world? Is this what we want to create for the world? How do we want to live in this world? Um, here in the United States, there were, I guess, in the end of the 1800s, beginning of 1900s, two very important, um, I guess, environmentalists who had different philosophies of how to take care of the environment. And one was John Muir, and uh, who'd kind of developed his environmental philosophy here in California. And I think he was the founder, kind of, or the uh, catalyst for the National Park Service, is that right? And, um, and he, uh, his idea is that the natural world, or parts of it, are sacred for their own sake. And we want to protect them so they can be as they are. The other person was a man named uh, Gifford Pinchot, who was the first um, um, head of the National Forest Service. And he wasn't, he's not called an environmentalist. John Muir is, Muir is called an environmentalist. And Pinchot is called a conservationist. But the difference is that Pinchot wanted to uh, uh, run the natural world, take care of it, uh, so it was a natural resource that humans could use. And both of them wanted to care for it in some way. The extreme versions of these two views live in tension with themselves, with each other. The idea that we should leave the natural world alone, I read someone recently who said that the natural world can take care of it just fine if only we left it alone. And um, so just leave it alone, let it kind of go back and come to uh, homeostasis. The other is um, that it's all about what's best for us, for the economy and for me, myself and mine, my private property, I get to do whatever I want and, uh, you know, I don't care about anybody else. And, um, and those, are, those two views kind of live in tension and they probably live in tension uh, inherently in themselves, so just that probably live in tension within individuals as well. Um, if we only left the natural world completely alone, didn't touch it, I think we'd all die. You know, we need the natural world for our food and for our sustenance. If we only use it for our own sake, you know, me, myself, and mine, uh, we'd probably die because we would destroy it. And, uh, and that's happened down through the centuries over and over again locally. Uh, uh, I grew up for about five years living on the Adriatic coast, just uh, in, the, in a little town, a little city called Trieste, which is, was right on the border of Yugoslavia back then. I mean, just like just four minutes away or something. And, um, and so uh, we would, during the summer, sometimes we'd get in our car and we'd go down the coast of Yugoslavia on vacation for a day or go down. So I saw a lot of the coast of, it's called the Dalmatian coast. It's a beautiful coast, beautiful place. It's mostly rock. And back then in the 1960s, uh, we went... Uh, uh, snorkeling a little bit in some of these islands down there in the Dalmatian coast. And, uh, you go, and uh, very few people had ever snorkeled there. And you could still find, um, uh, mostly at this point, chards, but a few people found whole vases uh, from the Roman times. Because the Romans would grow, um, they'd grow uh, grapes on the, on the islands. And, um, and then they'd have boats coming in and then the boats would lose their vases or over the side or they'd drown, you know. Uh, sink or something. And so you can still find shards of these vases in the water, or some people found whole vases. It's kind of pretty cool. And um, 
it turned out that uh, back 2,000 years ago, what, was, what is now just rock used to be forested and lots of soil and, and wonderful conditions for growing grapes and olives. Greece also the same way. And then it was over farmed. And it was eroded and now they can grow nothing on it except tourists. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, it's kind, of has, it's kind of a certain kind of beauty, but it also, something was destroyed. And the local economy, I guess, uh, disappeared. Because, you know, it's, and it's happened repeatedly around the world that people have overused the environment and, that, and thereby ruining sometimes whole civilizations have disappeared because of that, you know, didn't see what they were doing. And uh, so we're still quite capable of doing such things. And, uh, and certainly that's just, you know, in the cards for us in some ways, in some places. But what about caring? Caring for this world, caring for the natural world. What is it about being situation-centered that allows us to take care of ourselves properly, not only t- allows us to take care of ourselves, but allows us to take care of ourselves in a very deep way. The kind of careful attention of mindfulness when it's really well developed and the real understanding capacity to really tune in to what's happening inside. We can actually take care of ourselves in some of the deepest and most effective, healthiest ways possible this way. That we can't if we're out of touch with what goes on inside. But we also, in the situation-centered model, we also become other-centered or uh, you know, other aware. And this other aware includes the environment and also includes the whole natural world, including other people. There's no, you know, there's no line, hard line, in terms of our survival, in terms of what we depend on to live in our lives between me and others. There's no hard line between the emotional connections that we have with each other the heartfelt connections with each other. We're social beings to varying degrees, different people, you know, more than others in a sense, but we're still social beings. And to live in this kind of open situation-centered way allows us to find a very rich and valuable connection to the people around us. It allows our mindfulness to have the mindfulness touch, where we touch with our awareness other people and it's possible to love them, it's possible to care for them, it's possible to feel kinship with others. And it's possible to do that in the, in the um, you know, locally, the people we encounter. But it's also possible to become interested or naturally inclined to care for people we read about in the news. The people of Puerto Rico and Virgin Islands and some of the Caribbean islands right now. I mean, they're gonna, that's a huge challenge and amount of suffering there. Is it happening to us or to them? It, you know, who, who is it happening to? I think it's happening to our fa- human family, their family. The people in, uh, the poor people in Africa or the people struggling in, in the two Koreas, the people in, you know, all over the world. Uh, what happens if we are situation-centered so that we don't have these sharp lines. So we have this, this mindfulness touch that's inclusive of it all. 
And my proposal is that uh, then we care. The caring is something that wells up inside, not as a requirement, not something that anyone should say you should do, but what I'd like to do, I don't want to say anybody what you should do, but what I'd like to suggest is that maybe if you give yourself the time, give yourself the development of attention, do this inner work of freedom that Buddhism points to, uh, that you'll, you'll, you'll be able to recognize that you care. You'll begin to recognize that in fact your mindfulness practice will have the mindfulness touch. Everything will turn into your kin. Everything will turn into your relationships. Everything will turn into you, something that you care for and your love. And that to then be motivated to actually have how we live our life come out of that care feels like we're coming out of a deep sense of belonging, a deep sense of meaning, a deep sense of, of uh, purpose. Um, it's a beautiful thing for the heart to be able to have these qualities. And that's what chaplaincy is about. Chaplaincy has a lot to do about supporting, helping people with issues of deep belonging, issues of uh, value, themselves, personal value, and, uh, purpose, reconciliation and healing of the divide and harm that exists between people. And so for chaplains to be environmental chaplains is to help the world, help people have this mindfulness touch to love the world, to find that we're in kinship with it, connected to it, and support them in these very important human needs of belonging, of purpose, of personal value, of direction, of healing, the work. And, um, and in doing so, I hope that we feel like we find ourselves in a way that um, brings a lot of peace and a lot of ease so that we're not, it doesn't bring us into a world of distress around the environment, but rather brings us into a world of that you know comes out of that mindfulness touch because the touch of distress is very different. We don't want the distress touch. So, um, Earth Care Week. So, this is a good week to consider this. So, I'm going to leave, as I said, but, you know, we still have, you know, 15 minutes. So, if you're willing, what I'd like to ask you to do before you leave is uh, to turn to two or three people near you and share with someone here um, one way uh, in which uh, you have had a, uh, a meaningful, inspiring, or loving, or something contact with the natural world. Just one way. And then at that, while you're distracted doing that, I'll leave. <laughs> Thank you all. <laughs>